a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 97 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever other platform you listen to podcasts on. This week's guest is going to be Andy Mazur. He is the pre- and post-game show host for the Chicago White Sox, also does regular innings of play-by-play for them. He's been all around the country and previously worked for the San Diego Padres. He has a great story to tell, but before we get to his story, I'm going to tell a little of my story because I have a brand new job. And this is a unique job where... Essentially, I have partnered with a local high school that that is one of the most consistent winners at the top level in the entire state of Minnesota. So I'm really lucky to be attached with them, and I'm essentially a one-man band to do these broadcasts, sell these broadcasts, engineer these broadcasts, hire people to be there and fill in when I can't do it. Uh, Pretty much, I'm doing it all. And in a lot of ways, that's scary because it's a lot of things that I haven't done before. But it's also really cool because I can mold the broadcast and the whole experience in the way that I want it to be as opposed to being micromanaged or having to build something in the image of what a corporate overlord wants it to be. While I'm not technically my own boss, the school and the booster club own the stream, they've given me a very long leash to build things the way I want to, and I'm really excited about that. A few of the things that I'm having to learn that have been the most challenging, or at least come the least naturally, are the business management side of things, uh, sending out and filling out invoices, keeping track of payments. All of that fun administrative stuff is something that I've never really had to do before. So it's it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, but I'll figure it out over time. And fortunately, we're starting off pretty small. Sales are going well. I'm about halfway to the goal that I wanted to reach for the entire year, and we haven't started the season yet, so that's positive. I kind of tried to double dip and do a little bit of my old sales job and do this simultaneously, and it took about two or three days of that to realize that I needed to pick one or the other. So I went out on my own. I wrote about it on my blog. If you want to see more details about it, check that out on SayTheDamnScore.com. But that is my story for episode 97. But now to the story that you're here for, the story of Andy Mazur, the pre- and post-game show host for the Chicago White Sox, also, again, does a lot of play-by-play for them. And Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. You got it. No problem. Have a beer. One of the questions I'd like to ask just about everybody, when they start this podcast, it makes a good icebreaker. At what point in your career 
did you know you wanted to get into sports casting? Were did you always know? Were you one of the people who talked into a recorder, or were you a late bloomer? Uh, I was one that always knew. Uh, my parents tell me stories about the fact that I was two years old walking around our uh, our house in suburban Chicago. Uh, and you're probably too young to remember Lincoln Logs, which were a little toy that uh, we played with. That were not were not electronic or anything like that. They were just plain little things that we could build cabins with. But I used it as a microphone, and uh, apparently I would be walking around the house uh, interviewing anybody that would uh, would talk to me, and sometimes even people that wouldn't talk to me. Uh, my my parents were always thrilled when my grandparents would come over because then I would leave my parents alone and pester my grandparents. But uh, yeah, it was one of those things, I guess, uh, you know, at a really really early age that uh, that I think I might have been destined to do. I don't know if that's uh, too strong to, to say, but uh, I, I guess it's always been in my blood. Did using Lincoln Logs as microphones, um, you know, hurt the structural integrity of the log houses you were building? Is the question. Well, it depends on if it was a support beam or just you know like uh, <laughs> just a regular part of the wall. I mean, you could probably live with a hole in the wall, but uh, you know if you take the the support beam for the roof down, then you're in trouble. You decided to go to Bradley University, and usually, what I find with people who just know what they want to do at a young age is those are the people who go to Syracuse or Northwestern or Missouri or Kansas. You chose Bradley, which kind of under the radar has a great lineage of broadcasters who have come through there. Uh, what went into that decision to go to Bradley instead of one of the more well-known uh, entities? Well, truth be told, um, I was not what you would call a great student. Um, I didn't, uh, I, you know, I, I had the, the ability. I just didn't really, and my mom will tell me this all the time because she was, she was an English teacher for 40 years and she used to watch me uh, put everything off until the last second and really not uh, give too much uh, a care of some of my schoolwork because I was focused so much on doing things that, uh, that I wanted to do. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, watching games on TV and, and trying to, uh, to develop a style and things of that nature. And I, you know, I was able to do some stuff in high school as well. Uh, so it, it really basically came down to the fact that I felt like I needed a, uh, a smaller school to go to. And, you know, to be honest, we didn't really have that much of a, a great radio TV program when I was going there. Um, a lot of us were, that were there kind of made our own, uh, own breaks in a, you know, a medium market. We, I, we figured that, you know, a lot of people would kill to start in Peoria or even end up in Peoria, which, uh, you know, a small little town in, uh, in central Illinois. So, you know, the, the, the schooling aspect of it was really good for me, and we found things to do. Um, you know, I, I was around the Bradley basketball team quite a bit. Uh, a friend of mine and I, we uh, would host a show with uh, with Hersey Hawkins, who was uh, our, one of our star players back then, went on for, with a pretty good NBA career. And you just started kind of down that path. And I met so many people that I, I, I now work with even in Chicago, in Peoria. It was a, it was a great uh, starting point for, for a lot of us. And I don't know if I even realized that at the time, but it was, it was more of a decision about uh, full education rather than just, uh, just broadcasting. What was your first break into getting a job after graduation from Bradley? Well, I was lucky enough that I was working at a radio station in Peoria that had an AM station, an FM station, and a television station all under one roof. It was a CBS-owned property, uh, WMBD Radio and WMBD TV were the, were the two big ones that were there. We had a top 40 radio station on FM as well. So I was doing some internships for the AM station 
uh, into my junior year and in my senior year. And I basically parlayed that into about four different part-time jobs within the one building. I was doing uh, floor directing on television. I was doing an AM radio shift. I was doing a top 40 radio shift and I was writing copy. So a typical day for me was very atypical because it was kind of all over the map. I'd be at the, I would check into the building sometimes around 9 a.m. and leave after the 10 o'clock news was over at, at 11. And, you know, that's just kind of the way it was. I mean, we all we all knew what we were in for. We all knew that uh, we were going to have to put in some long hours and some long days. So, you know, after graduation, I was lucky enough to stay there in that building. And uh, I actually parlayed it into, believe it or not, my first full-time job was in Top 40 Radio. I was doing an overnight shift. Um, back in September of 1991, I want to say it was, and uh, that really kind of started uh, started the whole full time uh, uh, de- 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 uh, devotion, I guess would be the right word, uh, to radio. Take us through what it's like to work for an overnight shift, because those are shifts that <laughs> that really no longer exist very at a very large level at all. They're mostly tracked now, so. Uh, what did you have to do, and what were your callers like on the overnight shift? It was an interesting time because you basically have to reset your clock 12 hours. So midnight was noon. Noon was midnight. And sometimes that's not a very easy thing to, to kind of set your body to do. Because when it's bright and sunny outside, you're not supposed to be sleeping. You're supposed to be outside doing things. And you're supposed to be at work. Um, and I was not. And, of course, you know, staff meetings were always called at a certain time when it was really inconvenient for, for me because, you know, I was I was trying to get my sleep before I was to show up for the shift. I'd have to be there at 10 o'clock, and my shift went from uh, on the air from midnight to 5.30. And the only saving grace of the whole thing was, again, I mentioned we, we had that building that had AM, FM, and TV in it. So there was always somebody in the AM station. There was always somebody in, in TV. So there's three of us and a janitor. Uh, in the in the building overnight, there was, there was four of us, and we all became really good friends. And because uh, we were all always hanging out in each other's studios, and people would come in and just kind of keep each other company. We did some crazy things. We would ride bicycles through the building. We would uh, we <laughs> the, the one story I love to tell, and I'm so glad that my boss has never ever found out about this. Before. This was the day days before you had cameras everywhere. Uh, our radio station and our TV station participated in this our Arthritis Foundation Mini Grand Prix. We had mini go-karts in our storage facility that was at the very uh, front of the building. <laughs> so we decided that uh, we were going to take the cars out for a little ride uh, at three o'clock in the morning. I actually had the janitor in the FM studio segueing songs for me. <laughs> and we were out driving go-karts uh, in the middle of the middle of the parking lot. And the one time we decided to go on the street, which was probably not a real smart idea. But we did a bunch of different things. We, we had a lot of fun, uh, and we were all around the same age, so it was it was some of the better times of my of my career in my life because, you know, I had a great social uh, social life. I had a full time job in radio. I was going out and doing stupid things that you know stupid people do uh, at certain times, and uh, it was really kind of a cool experience. I, I think you asked me about the callers too. I actually had one night where you know I would answer the phones a lot because. People on the third shift in in, uh, in Central Illinois were usually uh, interesting people. Let's put it that way. Uh, they were working factories and you know, hardworking people, but they were, you know, they were kind of uh, crass is not the right word, but very direct. Let's put it that way. And some didn't didn't appreciate some of the music we were playing. Uh, I actually had one guy who 
fell asleep on the phone. And I continued to go back to him every after every song <laughs> to see if he was still sleeping. And he was snoring on the phone. I mean, you, you couldn't you couldn't stage that kind of stuff. But, you know, it started to, you know, it started a little more of the creativity bug flowing through me, too, because, you know, overnight you can try a bunch of things. There's not a whole lot of people listening and your, your bosses are definitely not listening. And, uh, you know, I took some chances and I did some things that, uh, you know, I think that, you know, kind of uh, not, knocked me out of my shell a little bit. And, you know, trying to be uh, this uh, typical and stereotypical radio guy. And I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be that at all. I wanted to kind of have a little fun and, and see what uh, what kind of boundaries we could push on the overnight show. And luckily, I was only on that show for about a, about a year, year and a half. And then they bumped me up to the night show, which was starting at 7, which was a lot better because, you know, I could actually sleep like a normal human being and, and, and sleep in to be my heart's content. Uh, I would sleep until noon, 1 o'clock, back in the day when I could actually do that. But, yeah, it was it was great experiences. You know, I wasn't doing sports. I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. But I was around it because I could uh, I could do uh, some things for the TV sports department and uh, still be around Bradley basketball because I knew a lot of people there. Do you think that the cutting of a lot of overnight shifts, do you think that hurts younger up-and-comers in the industry now that those are mostly voice-tracked? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, I mean, we, we had some – I had some of the best times in my radio career in that crazy midnight to 5.30 experience. I mean – there's no better learning ground because like I said, there's not a lot of people listening. Your bosses can take a, take a chance on somebody because, you know, again, chances are there's not a whole lot of people that are going to call and complain or compliment, but it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, back in the day, you needed to keep the needles moving. You needed to keep the, the programming going. And uh, obviously people were tuned in for the music, but it gave you an opportunity to, to develop yourself as a broadcaster, develop some skills, and again, like I said, you know, take some chances and, and things of that nature. So yeah, I, I think that that's it's kind of uh, kind of curtailed some people, but you have to understand too. I mean, back in that day, we did not have what you're doing right now. We didn't have a podcast. We didn't have anything that you could put on YouTube because YouTube wasn't a thing. You know, when I was <laughs> when I was doing that show in 1991. So I think that it, it kind of balances itself out a little bit because now. You know, if you don't have a radio shift and you and you're aspiring to be in radio, you could do a podcast. Uh, you can do something on YouTube. You can do something on a on a website that uh, that you design because these are opportunities that are existing now because of the way technology has evolved. Um, you know, we depended back then on these kind of opportunities to to kind of uh, be you know, something that we could use to move forward. Um, you know, now you have a lot of different things you can do to get noticed, to show your work, and uh, you know to, to kind of practice and, and hone your skills. You said you took that in 1991. You got to WGN in 1999, according to the timeline that I could find. Give us the Cliff Notes version of how you went from overnights uh, driving go karts to working for one of the biggest radio stations in the country. Seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Eight years <laughs> uh, driving go karts and then covering Cubs baseball. Yeah, it, uh, there was a lot in between, but I'll 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 give you the clip on this version as you say. Yeah, I stayed at that radio station until about 1994, and they changed formats and let everybody go. I was out of work for about six months in Peoria, and a station started up and wanted to be the the new version of the station that I was working at. Hired me as a program director, and I quickly realized that uh, being in that leadership role. 
was something I could do, but the, 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 the minutia around that job really kind of soured me on any kind of a management situation. It was, you know, the scheduling and depending on part-timers and depending on uh, punctuality from your actual ad, full-time hosts. And it was a real deal. And I didn't really, uh, didn't really like the ownership that I was working for at that point. So, uh, they asked me to leave and I was really voluntarily ready to leave. Uh, I moved back to my hometown of Chicago and I got uh, a job working for a company that, uh, stations would outsource. Uh, we did traffic reports. We did sports. We did news. And that's where I really got into sports. Uh, Jeff Joniak, who's the voice of the Chicago Bears, was the, was the sports director in that outfit. And I told him, I'm like, listen, I can do this. I can do sports. I can do sports updates. Yes, trust me, I can do it. He goes, all right, well, show me you can do it. Uh, put together a tape, and I want to hear some audio in there and blah, blah. You know, he wanted, he wanted me to basically give him one audition tape every week. So him not realizing who I am, I, I gave him four every week. <laughs> and he got so far behind that he just like, okay, fine, fine. And he gave me a uh, an air shift on the old WMAQ here in Chicago, which is now uh, the sports radio station at 670 on the AM side. And I ended up working basically for three years. I was working seven days a week. I was doing traffic reports for an FM station in Chicago Monday through Friday. And I was working for Jeff at uh, the, the new station uh, Saturdays and Sundays. Then I parlayed that into a job with uh, what was called then One on One Sports, which I think now might be Bleacher Report Radio or something like that. It had like seven different incarnations. Uh, but I was doing uh, updates for them. I actually hosted an overnight show, uh, which cleared all of our affiliates, which was something like 420 at that point. And uh, then uh, I, I met up with a guy that uh, is not working at the ESPN radio station here, uh, Mark Silverman who was working at WGN and was leaving to go to ESPN radio that was just starting up. And I met him at uh, covering a Cubs game in 1998. And he said, yeah, you should go for, you should go for my job here. I'll give you all the information and blah, blah, blah. So I, I did. And the process took nearly to, to get, I mean, I, I put a tape in. Um, I waited like three or four months before I actually even heard that they got my tape. Um, then I heard oh, about a month, another month later to come in for an interview. I ended up having three interviews for the job and finally got it in, uh, late December, early January of 1999. And, uh, yeah, that was, the rest was history there. I mean, I, I kind of parlayed that into, you know, a lot of work with, uh, with the Cubs and then it kind of set me up for my next, uh, for my next endeavor. I emailed Dave Ennett, who had been on this podcast in the past, and asked for stories on mm -hmm. you. And the one he told me to ask you was <laughs> was traveling with Ron Santo and getting those first uh, Cubs reps, basically because when Pat Hughes was taking a break, Ron Santo wanted nothing to do with play-by-play -play and that maybe he didn't always get back in time. So you got those reps. Yeah. It was really interesting how that all developed. And uh, – and I will say this too, Dave, Dave is probably, and I, I shouldn't even say probably, Dave Ennett is the best boss I've ever worked for in, in my career. And if he's ever on your podcast again, you can tell him that and he'll be very embarrassed by it, but it's the truth <laughs> because he was not, he's not a micromanager. He's one of these guys that realizes that he's hired somebody that knows what he's doing and basically lets them be, lets them do their thing unless, you know, if something goes wrong and then he'll be, he'll be on you. But Dave, Dave is one of those guys that, uh, I, I really appreciate working for it. and the relationship that he and I developed over that nine years I was at WGN really allowed me to come back and be in the role that I'm in now. But back to the original question. Uh, the, uh, the stories of the road are unbelievable. Um, 
you know, I was kind of in awe the first time I walked, walked into that booth because, you know, I was old enough to see Ron play a little bit. And my dad was, was doing jumping jacks because he's like, oh, my God, you're going to be working with Ron Stano. Oh, my God. And my dad grew up a uh, second-generation uh, diehard Cubs fan. And it was really intimidating. But, you know, Ron and Pat were very, very gracious. Um, I went to spring training uh, in 99, and Ron put his huge arms around me. This was before he uh, was even was even ill. And walked me through the Cubs clubhouse and introduced me to every player that I needed to be introduced to. And we walked out of there and he goes, if anybody gives you any trouble, you let me know. I'm like, okay. And I never had any trouble because I was always associated with, with Ron and with Pat. And, you know, they were about as professional as, as you can get. Uh, you know, Ron got sick after the, in the off season of 2001, he got sicker. Let's put it that way. Diabetes caused him to lose uh, one of his legs below the knee and the Cubs marketing director at the time uh, was a guy named John McDonough, who is now the president of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks here in town. And he called me and he said, "Hey, how would you like to, you know, get on the road with these guys and kind of hang on, hang out with Sano, and you know, make sure that <clears throat> that he's feeling okay and that everything's all right? You know, we want you to have a room that's next to his, and just want you to kind of keep an eye on him. And oh, yeah, no, by the way, you want, we want you to do the pregame show and the postgame show from there." And, uh, yeah, we might need you to fill in a couple times on play by play. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. And, uh, yeah, that, that's began my, my travels with Ron and with Pat. And I mean, the, the stories I can tell you would take like three hours for me to even, you know, tell you about. But, uh, Sano was very well known for having a, uh, for having a toupee. And two, on two occasions, I almost wet myself laughing hard, as hard as I possibly could because of, Things that happened with his toupee. We were at the old Shea Stadium in New York in 2003, second game of the year, and the old booth in, in Shea Stadium kind of uh, the roof kind of pitched forward, so it was it was taller in the back of the booth and really short uh, lo- lower in the front of the booth. And they had these giant space heaters that were hanging over uh, from the roof down, and we we're standing up for the national anthem. And I looked at my my producer engineer Matt Bolts at the time. I go, man, what's some smells? And we looked down. And Ron had his toupee basically right on the space heater and smoke <laughs> was coming out of his head. And we had to let him know. I mean, like, hey, Ron, duck, you know, sit down. And he's like, Oh man. So he took, he, he goes to the bathroom and this is a guy walking chase dating, which uh, if he hadn't been in there, it was not the most accommodating area that uh, would ever be around for, for, uh, for broadcasters. It was, it was narrow. It was uh, very steep as far as getting up from the bottom of the booth to the top to get out. So he's limping out to the to go to the bathroom, and he came back. Uh, and he put water on it, and it looked like looked like Tiger Woods was there and took a seven iron and took a big divot. <laughs> and uh, so that that, that, that hairpiece went away. But three years later, we're in St. Louis, and he couldn't find his couldn't find his toupee in his room. Only two times I ever saw him without the toupee in St. Louis. And he calls me on the phone, and says, "Ask me if I brought a baseball hat with me on the trip." I go, "Yeah, I always bring a baseball hat." He goes, "Bring me one." I'm like, "All right, fine." So I walked over and. He didn't like the hat, so he wouldn't wear it. And we're looking for the toupee, and I'm I'm searching. We're looking at the bathroom, we're looking at the drawers, we're looking under the bed. Can't find this thing. I mean, you you would think it's a it's a it's like a lump of hair, you know. You're, you're trying to find it. So his grandson called him. He's so he's taking a cell phone call over near the bed, and I walk over by the desk, and there was a box that was there from the Cubs that had sent him some promotional pictures to sign for a giveaway the next day at Wrigley. So I lifted up the box, 
and attached to the box was something that looked like a, a dead raccoon, uh, but it was actually a tube. It was stuck to the adhesive, the the adhesives from the from the tube and the adhesive from the box kind of fused together. <laughs> and instead of grabbing the tube and handing it to him, I brought him the box because I wasn't touching that thing. And he was doubled over with laughter. He couldn't believe that it was there because he was he was signing stuff. I he, the man that he was. I, I could go on and on about how much he meant to me. One of the most genuine, uh, caring, charismatic human beings that I have ever met. Who, in the nine years that I traveled with him, I never, ever, ever once heard him ask the question, "Why me?" And I was like, I was really struck by that because he had every right to ask. He lost his other leg a couple of years later, and then went through bladder cancer and all the all the issues that he had, and probably next to my grandfather, my dad's dad, the strongest person I've ever met in my life, uh, not only physically, but mentally, uh, just the character that he, he showed. I'm still very close with his family. Um, even after I left to go to, uh, to San Diego, every time I came back, uh, to, to visit, uh, at Wrigley when, I, when the Padres were playing the Cubs, I would spend a half hour, 45 minutes just in that booth laughing my rear end off because, we were a family for nine years. I mean, it was a very tight knit group that we had. You know, we could make fun of each other, but if anybody else started to make fun of anybody in our group, you know, the claws came out and we were just very protective of, of each other. And the day he passed away was one of the toughest days I've had. I mean, I, I couldn't sleep and I, I was 1800 miles away and really wanted to be there. And luckily enough, I mean, I'm fortunate for me it was in the off season. And I was able to get to the funeral, and I was one of the pallbearers, and and it was just, it, 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 the man, I think about the man every day, uh, still to this day. I know I'm getting off subject here, but it just kind of get me get me going on Ronnie there. But that was a great opportunity for me to to finally get into a, a major league broadcast booth, to travel with a big league ball club on a charter, to learn the the do's and don'ts of the road, to learn the do's and don'ts of dealing with players, the do's and don'ts of broadcasting pregame shows. Uh, how to market yourself, how to network, how to meet people. It, I, the, the experience I got there, so invaluable to me that uh, it, it's, it's the foundation of everything I have right now. What was going through your head the very first time you went on the air as the play-by-play <laughs> announcer for an inning for the Chicago Cubs? Logan, I was terrible. I was awful. I listened back to some of those tapes. And I am absolutely embarrassed that my voice and my name were attached to that. Uh, and it was on WGN radio. You know, the first time you do anything on a, on a grand scale, I would be completely lying to you if I was, if I didn't tell you I was, I was shaken. Cause all the thoughts start to go through your head. You know, I grew up in North, on the North side. I grew up really admiring a lot of the broadcasters that came through the Cubs, Jack Brickhouse, Vince Lloyd, Lou Boudreaux, Henry Carey. Milo Hamilton, I'm sitting in a chair that maybe one of these guys sat in, all right? So I'm freaked out to begin with. This is a Wrigley Field. I mean, it's not like it's, uh, you know, a, a, a park district park that you're sitting there calling a 15, a 16-inch softball game or a 12-inch softball game. This is big league ball. It's the Cubs, for goodness sakes. So you got a lot of things going through your mind. And I was so hell-bent on being good that I was terrible. And I had to kind of take a step back. And I 
obviously I had a great resource at my disposal there in Pat Hughes, who to me, dollar, you know, dollars to donuts is, is one of the best in the game, if not uh, the best going right now. I think he's just fantastic. And, you know, I picked up a few things from him. And the biggest thing he told me to do was just relax and be myself. He said, don't try to be me. He says, don't try to be Vince Lloyd. Don't try to be Lou Boudreau. He said, be you. Just do what you do. You know, just, just tell me where the ball is. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And, you know, it's tough to do for an inning because, you know, you, it's hard to, it's hard to prepare for, you know, which players are going to be up when you're, when you're calling the game. So you have to prepare for everybody. You can't just prepare for three guys that you might, you might see. So it's full blown preparation for a broadcast that you might be on for 10 minutes. You know, I mean, it might be two, one, two, three innings. And there you go. So I kind of equated it to being a pinch hitter in the National League. You sit, you sit, you sit, you get your opportunity. And it's what you do with that opportunity that lets you know that, okay, you might get a start here or there. Or, hey, you're our first guy off the bench. Or you're this, you know, you, you kind of make your name. And once I kind of boiled it back down to, you know, the basic simple principles of the whole thing, tell me where the ball is. Uh, you know, I was a little bland at first. I'll admit that. But I was so busy trying to concentrate on calling where the ball was that I didn't want anything else to get in the way. And then, you know, eventually over time, after doing things, you know, and you know how it is. You, you do things for a certain amount of time. And all of a sudden now the basics are just, they're just there. And you don't have to worry about them because you know them and you've drilled them in your head. And then you can start adding stuff. And I used to start having fun with Sano. My goal every time I sat down behind that mic was to make Ron laugh at least once every broadcast. And I, I did it. And, uh, it was, it was a fascinating on the job kind of training where you literally hear about going from the, uh, you know, being thrown into the fire. Well, yeah, my feet were on, were on fire for the first, uh, you know, few weeks or a few months that I did that, but I wouldn't have that any other way because it really forced me to, you know, kind of reevaluate things as far as how I'm attacking these broadcasts. And, uh, and I think now, I look back on those days and go, man, that was a lot of fun. And I'm so glad that I got that opportunity to do it because, like I said, that, that was, it's the foundation basically for everything that came after that in my career. How difficult was it to leave that self-described family that you had become uh, to chase your dream in San Diego? <laughs> it was nerve-wracking. It was a tough, tough thing. Um, and to complicate things, you know, I was still working for the radio station, so I was still doing uh, reporting in the off season, and it just so happened the Bears made the Super Bowl that year. So I get sent to Miami. Now, this is after I had made initial contact with the Padres, and I had a phone interview. And I had flown there once, and the president of the team, Sandy Alderson at the time, was not around for the interview. I interviewed with the radio station. I interviewed with the, with the ball club. It was a team position. And I get this call in Miami saying, hey, we, we, Sandy's back in town. We'd love for you to be able to come out here and, and meet with us again. And I'm like, okay, well, here's the problem. I said, I'm in Miami right now, and I'm covering the Super Bowl, and the Super Bowl is Sunday, and I, the earliest I can get out is Monday. And they're like, okay, great, we'll make all the arrangements. So if you've ever covered a Super Bowl, the Super Bowl ends at, uh, you know, usually 11, 11-ish uh, Eastern time. Your work is basically just beginning at that point. I was up until probably about three. I had to 
quickly gather my things. And luckily I had brought a sport crew with me because I didn't even think that, you know, anything was going to happen. But I was told that, you know, every once in a while when you go to these uh, parties and things of that nature at the Super Bowl, that some of them require you to have a jacket. So I had a jacket with me at least, and I figured, you know what, I'll, I'll bring a tie just in case. Thank goodness I did because I had all that stuff with me. I had to fly from Miami to Los Angeles, 9 a.m. in the morning flight from Miami to L.A., and then I had to get on a, on a little puddle jumper from L.A. to San Diego. My meeting was supposed to be at 3.30. Well, my flight gets delayed in, in Miami. I get to – I basically land in Los Angeles at 3.30. I've got to run from one side of the terminal to the other side of the terminal where they have the commuter, commuter planes. I get on that. I land at, uh, at Lindbergh Field in San Diego at 4.15. I'm frantically calling the, uh, the guys that I'm interviewing with. I'm like, I, I just landed – like, just relax, take your time, get here when you get here. So I got there, and long story short, I had to go to the bathroom, just put water on my face and wake up a little bit because I was been smushed on a, on a <laughs> flight next to a very large human being the entire flight uh, from Miami to, to L.A. But it was, uh, it was an interesting thing because I didn't think I was going to get it. I thought there was no way that they are going to take a chance on a guy that's just been doing an inning, um, you know, and I never had any thought that I was going to get it. So I'm flying back from San Diego to Chicago, and you, know, you turn your phone off. I, I turned my phone back on when I landed, and I got a message from from Glenn Casper, TV voice of the Cubs. He goes, "Hey, I'm a message. You got it. You're going to be the guy." I'm like, "How do you? First of all, how do you know?" And I'm not going to. I'm not taking your word for it. So I'm just going to go and go. I'm, I'm on my business. Then it became real. I was at the Cubs convention. I was literally on a bus going from Chicago to Rockford with the new manager of the Cubs, Lou Pinella, with Mark DeRosa, with Michael Wirtz, who was a pitcher for them, and Kerry Wood. I'm sitting there on this bus, and my phone is ringing. And they're like, get it. I'm like, all right, so I got it. And I found out on that bus that the job was mine if I wanted it. <laughs> like, okay, worlds are colliding. Uh, I'm on this bus with guys that I'm a just meeting for the first time and B that I've known for a long time. And it suddenly got real. So we get to the convention and I'm in, I'm an, I'm a disaster. I'm a wreck because I, I now have to make this decision that I never thought I was going to have to make. And here I am, there's Ron Sano, there's Pat Hughes, there's Dave Bennett. There's all these guys that I've grown up with and I've got to tell somebody something, but I got to tell somebody this before I burst. So I, you know, had a little conversation and Pat Hughes' first statement to me was, you got to take it. I'm like, yeah, but Bubba, he goes, you got to take it. He goes, do you want to do this for a living? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm not going anywhere for a while. So don't, you're not going to be here. He says, so you got to go somewhere to do it so that you're taken seriously. I'm like, okay. That was pretty much the, the tipping point for me because had I stayed, it would have been a very comfortable situation. It would have been familiar. It would have been easy to stay. I'm from here. Uh, my family is here. I could have easily just said, no, I don't feel like going 1,800 miles away. I've never lived out of the state of Illinois before in my life. I'm almost 40, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I had to take it. So I took it. And I don't regret a minute of it because I don't – it didn't end very well for me out there uh, for a number of reasons uh, that were beyond my control. But I really feel like if I didn't go out there – and do the job I did, 
I wouldn't have been in the position to take over a broadcast for, for Ed Farmer or to be able to jump into the booth for anything at home and do those kind of things because I wouldn't have been taken seriously. I would have been thought of as the pre-post guy that, oh, yeah, he does some play-by-play too. Now I'm kind of considered as a play-by-play guy that's uh, doing a little pre and post around uh, around the inning here. So it was tough because, as you say, and as I said, you know, you're around a group of people for as long as I was, you you get to know everybody, and everybody gets to know you, and you feel like you have a really great support system. And now I'm I'm pushing it to the side, and I'm going out to a place where I don't know anybody. I may I mean I knew like fringe a couple of people that were working uh, out there. Uh, Matt Vasgersian I had met a couple of times. Uh, Mark Grant I had met a couple of times. TV guys that were out there at the time, and I had you know casually met Ted Leitner and uh, Jerry Coleman at that point. But I didn't know those guys like I knew the guys I was working with. But, uh, you know, I had to do it. And it was a very tough decision. But in retrospect, it was an easy decision. If you're leaving someplace you're comfortable with and have never lived elsewhere and your option is San Diego, it could certainly be a uh, a worse place to go. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I had always loved San Diego whenever we'd gone out there with uh, traveling out there with the Cubs. Um, covering games with the Bears uh, when they would play the Chargers before they left for Los Angeles. And it was always a great, great place to be. And it got better, you know, with uh, downtown development and things of that nature. And, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was incredible for me, a Midwestern kid, to be out there playing golf in January. I mean, i, I got to be honest with you, it was kind of cool. My brother called me uh, in 2011. Chicago had uh, the first of the many polar vortexes that have gone through here and a snowstorm that shut down Lakeshore Drive. There were pictures online of cars and buses abandoned on Lakeshore Drive. And it was, it snowed for like four or five hours. <laughs> and uh, my brother called me and I happened to be on a golf course. <laughs> and I knew what was going on back home. And he basically said, you know, he asked me where I was. And I was like, I'm in San Diego. He said, yeah, I know. But where are you right now? I'm like, I'm I, he finally made me tell him, and I said, oh, I'm a, I said, actually, I got to go. I'm, uh, it's my turn to tee off on number six. He hung up the phone. <laughs> and I called him back later. I go, dude, you wanted me to tell you where he was. Well, you didn't have to tell me. I'm like, all right. Well, I mean, so that, that part of it was awesome because, you know, you get back into a situation where everything, it's always warm, it's always nice, and it's, it's, a, it's beautiful. It can get kind of boring because it's the same day every day. And I know that sounds really stupid to say for a person that's living here in Chicago now and we're waiting for summer and now summer's finally here. Um, but it was, it was a great experience and you're right. I mean, there are a lot of worse places I could have ended up and, and not just, uh, uh, location wise, but there are, I'm sure there are situations that were a lot worse that I could have gotten myself into because I was in a challenging spot too, because I was entering a broadcast for, with two guys that had been there each around 25, 30 years. So they were really ingrained in the community and Ted Leitner and, and, uh, and Jerry Coleman. And I, I thought, you know, the first year was a little, that was a little dicey just because they were trying to get to know me a little bit. And I was trying to get to know, trying to get to know them, but you know, they were trying to give me a bigger role. And I had already cleared the air with, uh, with Jerry Coleman, who was a little worried about his own situation at that point. And, you know, Jerry was uh, an interesting guy. He was a guy that, it took me about a year and a half to really get to to know him and for him to know me. And by the end of the uh, end of my time there, uh, I was basically doing Sunday home games all nine with him 
as my color commentator. And I was actually on the air with him for his last ever broadcast. Uh, it was a home game, a walk-off win. And he, of course, being of the old school broadcast, he would just jump over all my calls. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm trying to describe the play that happened to, to win the game. And he jumps in with, what a finish. And that was a, those are the last words he ever uttered on uh, on Padres Radio and passed away in January of that, uh, that next year. So, yeah, I mean, I'm getting off subject here again, but uh, it was a great situation for me to go to uh, with the people that I met there. Uh, we had three different groups on the team while I was out there. So stability was not a great thing. Um, I made it through two of the three ownership groups. My contract happened to be expiring when the third group was taken over. A president had been fired. A new one was coming in. And the new one wanted nothing to do with me for whatever reason, uh, didn't want to renew me. And, uh, you know, that, that, it happens. I was, I was very angry for a, a year or so because, you know, you work really hard to get somewhere and to see it ripped away from you for no other reason than a change in ownership and a change in, uh, in management because certainly it wasn't anything that I was doing wrong as was judging by the social media posts from when people found out that I was leaving. Uh, it was, uh, it was a situation again that was really bad at the time, but I look back on more fondly as the years go on a little bit because I kind of realize now that without that experience, I, like I said, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. I wanted to talk to you about that and I'll just go there since you brought it up. Taking mm-hmm. the high road yeah. and I read, I went back and I read your blog of uh, your kind of farewell mm-hmm. and it would be really easy to, you know, let that anger that you almost certainly had seep through, and you didn't do that. Was there ever a moment where you you wanted to? Was it hard to 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 take the proverbial high road? Uh, absolutely, it was. Um, and you know, before I wrote that that little farewell, and the the, the eeriest part, the worst part about the whole thing was, I knew that I was out three weeks before they were going to announce it. So I had to walk around carrying this burden of information that I couldn't share with anybody. I mean, obviously I shared it with my family and with, with close friends, but it was a really tough time because, it was, you know, Jerry Coleman had just passed away and I was literally the day that I found out the next day was the memorial service for Jerry at, at the ballpark. So I'm sitting in the clubhouse and walking around with these guys that I'm not going to be working with again, and I can't tell them. And I know it's not about me. And that, that's the thing that kind of snapped me out of it a little bit because we were all there to celebrate a life that was very well lived um, by, by Jerry, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, an Amer- American hero. And if people that are, are listening to your podcast here that don't know about Jerry, I, I definitely suggest you go and Google him because he was a, he, he led three lives. He was a serviceman, uh, a great pilot for in two wars, uh, World War II and the Korean War. He was a great player for the New York Yankees, and then a broadcaster for almost fifty years. So I mean that that and that that kind of put it in perspective. But kind of going back to what you were talking about, it was hard because a lot of the people that had started the ball rolling on my demise out there were in the clubhouse at the time, and I really wanted to be cold and you know unforgiving to them 
I couldn't do it because it was Jerry's it was Jerry's day. But there were some there were some things leading up to it that I probably should have handled a little bit better than I did. Um, I, I'm I'm the kind of person where I've, I've I get emotional, and I have a really hard time not telling you how I feel about things. And if I'm not telling you, you can probably tell just by expression and the way I'm um, carrying my carrying myself. I, I never let it affect my broadcast because that was my nirvana. That was my utopia. I shut the door. You know, for four hours, I didn't care about what was going on anywhere except for what was going on right in front of me. And that was the only saving grace I had about it at that point. But, you know, there were, there were, some, there were some things that I had said uh, to, to people that maybe I shouldn't have said things to because it got back to other people about stuff that I probably should have just kept my mouth shut. And, you know, you're in an emotional situation. Again, like I said, I, was, I worked my rear end off to get where I was going and to have some people just decide – well, we want to do this and really with no reasoning behind it. Um, so I, I struggled with that for, you know, the better part of a year because the last year I was there was, was not a real fun time. They basically told me that I wasn't traveling anymore, that I was just going to be doing home games. And it was the last year of my contract. And it was very emotionally and it was deflating. It was a very deflating year. And during that course of that year, I did say some things that I do regret a little bit about the people that were making decisions. Um, and I know I got back to them and I know that um, it, it's, it's not the smart way to do it. And I tell, I tell younger broadcasters all the time now that you can't do that. Learn through, learn through the mistake that I made. And that, that's kind of what led me to that blog post where I was like, you know what? The listeners don't, don't give two craps about the politics that went on behind the scenes. They don't really care about the guy that makes the decision. They just care about the guy that they've heard on the air for seven years that they've gotten to know a little bit. And I was like, you know what? They don't need to know any of this stuff. They don't need to know why this is going on. They just need to know that I appreciated everything that they did for me because I was an unknown to them. And I took some lumps the first year I was out there as I think a lot of new broadcasters do in new cities, just because you're not the old people that they know. And you have to work really hard to get their trust, and you really have to work hard to let them know that you're a human being and that you're a friendly guy, that you're a guy they can get to know. And, you know, I did get to know a lot of the fans that were out there. There was a very active fan base in San Diego. And I just figured, you know what? I want to go out the way I want to go out. And I want to go out by telling them that, you know, this was not a decision that I came to on my own, that it was a decision that was made by others. And that being said, I, you know, enjoyed the hell out of my time there. And, you know, it was, it was all true. Everything that I wrote in that blog piece was, was the God's honest truth. And it came from the heart. And I will tell you, and I will, I haven't really told too many people this, but I, I was bawling when I wrote most of that because it was very emotional. It was an emotional time for me. Um, like I said, a lot was going on. And I had to get to the realization that, you know what, I'm not here anymore. And now, but what the hell is next? I wasn't a young guy. Um, I was a, at the time I was 47, almost, almost 48. And it was a, a very trying few years for me after that, but it was kind of cathartic and, uh, it was, it was helpful to me to get that stuff down on, on the computer screen. And after several editions of it, <laughs> I came up with the one that I that I posted, and I, I'm I'm really proud of that one. And 
it got a lot of uh got a lot of attention from from the fan base and social media lit up and it was uh it was very emotional it was I was so happy and and felt so loved down there and then at the same time I was like damn I'm not going to be there so it was it was very bittersweet one of the other teams you covered when you were in San Diego was one of the two that drove me nuts cuz I spent most of my career in South Dakota and both USD and SDSU to us were the University of South mm-hmm. Dakota and South Dakota State and people on national media would always <laughs> screw them up and say uh, uh University of San Diego and San Diego State I I wanted to know was there ever mistakes in the other direction that annoyed you guys um let's see no actually See, I was at USD, so you know I didn't even. I don't think we ever really had any mistakes that went the other way. That in in that particular part, we you know we were the uh, we were the uh, the private university, the uh, the good kids, so to speak, the the clean cut, wholesome American boys, you know. <laughs> and San Diego State was the uh, the city team. You know, they, they were recruiting kids from all over, and uh, Steve Fisher. Uh, and his crew there did a did a great job. I mean, that, they they made that uh, a pretty little known uh, state school uh, in Southern California a, a basketball hotbed. Look at Kawhi Leonard; he he played there, and I covered a bunch of games that uh, he lit up. We had a city series all the time, so one year it was in their gym and one year it was in our gym. And he must have, I think he scored like thirty eight points against us once in our in our building, and there was no shot that he would pass up. And he was the same guy, though. He was not emotional at all. So I'm not really surprised. People are saying, oh, you know, he won the NBA championship. Okay. That, that's just kind of the way he was. I mean, I was, you knew that he was going to go on to bigger and better things just because he was that good uh, at that level. But, uh, you know, that, that was a fun experience for me, though, because the first year I was at the University of San Diego, we had a new coach. And the, the school had not been to the uh, NCAA tournament uh, since 03. And this was 07. This is not a, this was not a basketball hotbed. This was, you know, a school on a hill that overlooked the bay. It was a beautiful city. It was a beautiful campus and it was a very expensive school to go to. And it had a pretty decent baseball team where Chris Bryant played. And, uh, we go to the, we go to the NCAA tournament my first year. I mean, we had a game at, at home that, uh, double overtime game against St. Mary's. I'll never forget. We were down 18 points at the half and thinking, okay, well, this runs over. They came back for overtime and for double overtime and won the game, and the next night played Gonzaga and beat them to go to the to go to the tournament. And then we beat Connecticut in the first round. I was like, wait, what the what is going on here? So I was having I was having 07 for me was a great year. I mean, I, I it was my first year with the Padres. We uh, had that game 163 in Denver against the Rockies, which to this day is still probably well, not, I would say probably it is the the best baseball game. I've ever seen in person or ever called to this day. And now I'm going to the NCAA tournament. We're beating Jim Calhoun's team in, in the first round of the, of the NCAA tournament. What's going on here? <laughs> it was, it was a great experience and a great time around there. And it was, it was a lot of fun doing the basketball in the off season for me because it got me away from the, uh, the big high priced, uh, you know, baseball players and the, the grind of every day to, have these guys appreciate me being here. Uh, the kids are great. The coaching staff is awesome. I love being around these guys. And it was very low pressure for me. So it was, it was an awesome a little diversion there during the offseason. 
there was a video clip of you that I watched. I think it might have been posted by STAA, but it said that when you were let go from the Padres, you called somebody from Chicago who told you like it was and kind of mm-hmm. and kind of brought you down to earth and helped you make your decision to go back. And if you don't want to reveal that mm-hmm. person, you don't have to. But what did he say to you uh, that that uh, that inspired you? Well, I got to go back in my memory banks, but I'll tell you exactly who it was. I mentioned his name once already. It was Jeff Jodian. Uh, Jeff Jeff is a great friend. Uh, you know, I don't talk to him every day. We, you know, obviously he's busy during this time of year with football. And when he was my boss at at uh, WMAQ in the early days of doing sports, he challenged me daily. And what I mean by that was, you know, it's easy to walk into a big studio and, you know, write a sports cast. That's good. But he wanted us when we were writing sports casts to consider where we were, to consider what station we worked for and make them better than good. And I, I did 12, I did 15 sports casts a shift. You know, so by the 15th one, you're like, Oh my God, I'm, I can't say the same thing again. I can't, I just, can't do it. And he, he stressed creativity and he wanted us to be better and he would challenge us. He would call, he would, you know, if you ever had a problem. Yeah. So, so Jeff was the kind of guy that would challenge you and he wouldn't tell you the sugar coating. You know, he would tell you, listen, no, you've got a big decision to make now. He says, you, what are you going to do? He goes, are you going to sit there and you're going to, are you going to cry about it? Or are you going to, are you going to do something about it? Pick up the phone and call some people. And you know, the conversation is going on and I'm sitting up there in my condo overlooking the place that I'm no longer with, you know, the, at the ballpark, I live right outside of it. And he kind of stamped me back into it. And he said something that, uh, he said something that he says, you have a chance to reinvent yourself or you have a chance to, to fade into oblivion. Your thing to, to think about fading into oblivion, because, you know, we, we, I'm sure, I'm sure not the only one thinking this way when we, uh, as, as broadcasters, you, know, you sometimes get to the point where you think, okay, well, the game's not going to go on anywhere. It's going to be different because I'm not there. When in fact, the game goes on for years without anybody. You know, the best in the game pass away and move on. And, you know, the, the game is still pretty strong. Um, so he snapped me out of that thought and then got me into thinking, okay, what's next? He's like, you can either, you know, continue to, to try to push to do what you do, or you can, you know, turn around and do something completely different. He said, but this is your time. Because this is your time to, to take this giant negative and make it into a giant positive for yourself. He goes, have you called your friends in Chicago? Have you called your friends in blah, blah, blah? And he was just going through this checklist that I had never even thought of because I was just too close to it. I had been in a situation for the two weeks before where everybody was, oh, we're so sorry. You know, how are you doing? You know, and you know, after a while, it's just like, enough I, I can't have and, I, and, I, and it was not a situation where I was like oh please stop because I really appreciated people giving a crap about me but you could only hear that for so long before you start thinking to yourself okay I, I leave me alone you know I got I got I've got I've got to do something here and it was Jeff that really kind of snapped me back into that whole thing of you know forget about all this put it behind you move forward because there's no sense and dwelling on any of the stuff that's going on here, you have to go forward. And it was, it was advice that I needed. I needed it at the time because there were people thinking inside the box for me. They were like, Oh, well you can stay in San Diego and you can do this. And I'm like, 
and it sounded good because it was a job and it was money. And I was like, wait a minute, if I stay here in San Diego and I'm here during the baseball season, I'm going to drive myself nuts because I'm not doing the game. So I knew I had to get out of there. I knew I had to, I knew I had to leave. And Jeff really basically illustrated that point to me, uh, you know, more so and more definitively and a little more uh, authoritatively uh, maybe than uh, I needed it at the time. But looking back on it, I absolutely needed the, uh, the, the stern talking to. And I was so appreciative that I had a friend and a colleague like him that was not afraid to tell me and rattle the cage a little bit and say, snap the hell out of it, dude. You got, you got to do something now. Okay. You can't just sit there and, and feel bad for yourself. You got to do something. And then from that point going full circle and basically getting back to where you started at WGN, what was the process to, to landing back there now working with the White Sox? Yeah, it was really interesting because like I told you before, you know, I, I left WGN, you know, and I, I kind of left Dave and it in a little bit of a lurch, but it was not really my fault. It was unfortunately the Padres dragged their feet on, you know, the decision making. And by the time it was all signed, sealed, and delivered, it was the middle of February of '07, and the Cubs season was right around the corner. We saw the Cubs at the time, and here I am giving up two weeks. Going, <laughs> um, I hate to do this to you, but I got to go. But what I did after that was I didn't, I did, you know, wring my hands and say, okay, I'm done with you. I actually helped him, you know, try to formulate some names and a plan to, to get somebody in quickly to uh, to replace me and get them up to speed. Uh, you know, Corey Provis was the guy they ended up hiring. And as I was moving to San Diego at the end of March, he was getting ready to do a couple of spring training games. And I was literally on the phone with him from the lobby of the hotel I was staying at before my place was ready for two hours, just going through all the things that he needed to kind of pay attention to in that broadcast. Booth. I kind of told him about the particulars, about the hierarchy, about you know, what to do, what not to do. Don't get frustrated. You know, so I, I felt like I was, I was still helping Dave, even though I was kind of leaving him in a bad spot. So I, I felt like I, I left that on good terms and I left the radio station on great terms as well. So I figured, okay, I'm going to call them and see what, see what's what they were, they were starting up a sports station and I called the morning show host who's still there um, and said, what are the possibilities? He goes, well, we're starting sports station. He said, but more, more importantly, I think I, he says, I think we, we're going to need somebody to fill in on the, on the hockey broadcast. And like, cause we had the Blackhawks too at the time. And I said, fill in and what? He goes, well, the guy that was doing the pre, the post and the intermission for the Blackhawks is also the guy who was doing the pre and the post for the Cubs. And now uh, his name is Jeff Surratt. He's now doing full-time, play-by-play for the Boston Bruins. But he decided he wanted to stick with the baseball team, and that opened up an opportunity for me to go to the Blackhawks. So I was with the Blackhawks the last part of April and through the playoffs in 2014, and it was an awesome experience for me. It was I'm a huge hockey fan, grew up a gigantic and ginormous Blackhawks fan, and I'm sitting in the booth next to a guy that played there, uh, Troy Murray, who was you know one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He and John Weideman are uh, the guys that still do the broadcast for WGN and two of the greatest guys you'll ever come across in your life. So I was really happy for about, you know, four months. And then you start to realize that you're not back at the same level you left. And that is a very interesting and strange dynamic because when I was there the first time, 
every opportunity that was out there was presented to me first because I was the guy that was, you know, had the ability to do it and was a full-time employee. And I was a contracted employee when I went back and I would see all these opportunities being presented. It was driving me, it was driving me insane. So it, it was a, it was a very trying three or four years because the sports station went under and there were three or four people that were uh, kept on because they were under contract and they were moving into roles that I was filling in on. So there, the fill in opportunities were dwindling and I was again faced with a little bit of a decision of whether or not to, you know, uh, poop or get off the pot, so to speak. And, you know, when you go weeks without doing a shift and you're a contracted employee, that means you're going weeks without money because you don't have. So, you know, again, there were decisions to make. So I, I kind of branched out into a couple other things that I really like to do. Uh, one of them is photography. I, you know, I have a website that I still sell photos off of and, uh, I still got out once in a while to take pictures, but I, I, I really truly believe that getting into photography and kind of forcing me to at least get out of my house in the morning, uh, give me a reason to leave the house because, you know, you get into situations where you're, you know, borderline depressed because you're not doing what you really want to be doing, but you need to inspire yourself to keep yourself sane for your past and taking pictures really did. My camera and I'd get in my car. I, would, I drove to Wisconsin. I would drive to, you know, Southern Illinois. I mean, I was going all over the place because I didn't have a, I didn't have a job to do, but I wanted to, you know, still feel like I was contributing something to, I guess, society or if you will, but it, it was kind of weird. The operation uh, that was based in Wisconsin, I was doing high school yearbook pictures and taking you know, pictures of high school sports. And it, it just felt really strange. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be up there. I'm not supposed to be down here taking pictures of it, but at the same time, it was something different. It was kind of an, it was kind of cool, kind of unique. I did that for about a year and I picked up a teaching gig, uh, at a, a trade school here in Illinois, teaching a, a graduate level, uh, co-teaching a, a graduate level class, which has kids anywhere from, and I say kids, they're students uh, anywhere from age 19. And I had one you know, guy in my class last semester who was 53, who was trying to, uh, change careers for the third time. And I got the chance to kind of impart some knowledge on these people. And as I'm speaking and doing these lessons to them, I'm like, dude, you still know this stuff. What the hell are you doing? And the luckiest break recently for me was the fact that uh, Cumulus Broadcasting, which was operating a couple of radio stations here in town that had the, the Bulls, the Black, uh, the Bulls, the White Sox broadcast, the, the company uh, filed for bankruptcy and the bankruptcy judge told them that they should divest of their sports properties and both teams went up for bid. So the Bulls went to the sports station here in the middle of the season, which I don't know how they were managed to do that. But February 14th of 2018, we announced that we picked up the White Sox. I mean, we're two weeks out of spring training and we've got the White Sox now. And the guy that was in charge, a guy by the name of Todd Manley, knew me obviously very well from my, my time there the first time around. And I told him when the rumors were starting, I said, Hey, listen, if we get the White Sox and you don't include me in some form or fashion of this broadcast, I'm going to be really upset. And he kept smiling at me like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, I've heard that before. And we get him. And two days later, he calls me into his office and says, all right, 
you're doing all the pregame shows. I'm like, all right, great. And, you know, it evolves. You know, things just kind of pick up speed. You know, you need to get in. You need to get in. And once you get in, you show people what you can do. You don't do it at anybody else's expense. You do it for yourself. And it eventually evolved into a conversation that I had at the very end of last year with the director of broadcasting for the White Sox. And I said, listen, I said, I didn't want to say anything during the year because I don't want anybody to feel like I was gunning for their job. I said, but listen, I can do a lot more for you if you need me to than I'm doing now. And he was aware of my, my previous experience. He and I had, had chatted briefly uh, before I left for San Diego and after I came back. And he goes, I know, I know. And he kind of had this look in his eye of like, there, there's plan, there's plans that I can't tell you. So I get into this year and then I find out that, uh, that you know, I'm doing an inning of every home game with these guys. And then I was traveling uh, for a few series here and there for vacation relief. And, you know, unfortunately at Farmer, uh, I took some personal time to address a couple of issues he had going on in his life. And I ended up doing uh, 11 full-time games, uh, and I, I just I feel like I'm I feel like I'm in a good situation, and I feel like uh, you know I've I've made a name for myself with a new group of people, uh, a new organization, and it's just a lot of it's a lot of fun being back around the game that I love so much. And you're right, I mean it's totally full circle because it's almost exactly how it happened with the Cubs broadcast where I got an opportunity and grabbed it by the throat and said, okay, here I am, let's go. And I feel like uh, I, I did that here. And obviously I'm hoping for more, but I'm very happy with what I have right now because as people say to me, well, you know, you used to do all the broadcasts and now you're doing an inning. I'm like, well, I said, listen, if you look at it this way, the one inning I'm doing now is a lot better than the no innings I was doing the last five years. And you got to start somewhere. You got to take. You got to. You got to take what you get. I want to wrap this up as we've already gone over an hour, and it's been fantastic. But there's a couple <laughs> things that I ask just about everybody that I love to yeah, to sure. get their input and their stories. I ask, what is your broadcast horror story? And when I say that, uh, where something during the broadcast went horribly wrong in a way that drove you nuts at the moment but you can look back and laugh at now. And as long as you've been in this business, I'm going to guess you have some good ones. So uh, what are your stories? Oh, yeah. Well, the one that sticks out to me is um, we're in St. Louis. I was with the Padres and it was a day game. And for some reason that we were having, a, I was having a lot of trouble seeing uh, the left field warning track fence bullpen because it was, really bright and our catcher comes up uh nick hundley and hits one to left and i'm in my mind no doubt this ball is gone <laughs> this ball is gonna bang off the back wall of the bullpen this is a home run and we were we were taking the lead it was in the fifth, the fifth inning and i'm going into my you know it's it's you know back to the track the wall looking up and this one is gone in the back of the bullpen and Sure enough, the ball actually <laughs> bounced on the warning track, <laughs> went over the wall, and hit the back side of the wall. So I'm going through this call, and I'm wondering, what the heck is Nick Hundley stopping at second base for? He just hit the ball out of the ballpark. 
And what is our guy doing going, stopping and going back to third when he was on first base when this was going on? And I'm talking to myself and I'm thinking, I was like, you idiot. It's a ground rule double. You stupid. And I'm, I must have gone on for like five minutes about what's going on here. And then finally, because Ted Lightner left the booth, he, you know, he went to, to get some to drink. He came back. He's looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? And it was one of the more embarrassing moments ever, but it was one that we referenced a lot because I, I find it this way. If you own up to your mistakes, you, you seem a lot more human. <laughs> and if you can laugh at yourself, you seem a lot more human. Now, if that had happened to me early on with my Cubs things, and you know, there were a few times where I had made some, some bad calls on, on things that I thought happened that didn't happen. That those days was like a, uh, I always equate it to golf. If you hit a bad tee shot and then you go out and you hit your fairway wood and you're approaching the ball and you're thinking, man, that tee shot stunk. How am I going to get this? And you, you duff your fairway wood and then you take your five iron and you, you screw that up. So what I'm, what I'm saying is you, you can't, you gotta get, you take the bad shot. You gotta let that go because you gotta make the next shot the best shot you, you've got to stay in, in the competition. And, you know, now I kind of look at it as, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes and there are going to be situations you're not prepared for. And you know what? You learn from them, you own up to them and you move on. And it's easier said than done sometimes because at the moment you're like, Oh God, this is going to be on every freaking blooper show. This is going to be on every, and you know, you start to think about all the horrible things that could happen out of it. And if you don't own up to it and try to diffuse it, it's going to blow up in your face. You know, luckily this one didn't go any further than a couple of people on the radio station that, that the games were on would have me out. And of course, the intro would be that that call, and I'd be like, okay, <laughs> so I'm not going to be able to live it down. And I didn't try to live it down, but at the time it was like it was mortifying. I'm like, oh my god, my career's over. This is done. This is the worst call in the history of the world. And then I, you know, I listen to other people do it, and you know, everybody does it. It's just it's one of those things you can't escape. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on an off day, uh, either just for pure enjoyment or to listen to improve your own craft? Wow, there's so many of them out there right now. I mean, growing up, it was it was obviously a little different. Uh, growing up, I I loved Ben Floyd here. I loved Jim Durham, who did the uh, the Bulls games. You know, I, I will be completely honest with you that during off days, I'm, I'm very really listening to it because I just want to get away a little bit just mm-hmm. because, you know, it's it's one of those kind of things. But <laughs> I'm more drawn to the old school guys. I think, uh, you know, guys like uh, Pat, uh, Pat Hughes and, and, and Marty Brenneman, um, you know, TV-wise, uh, and I say it's uh, because I'm a friend of it and everything too, but, you know, Brian Anderson, I, I love his style. I think that, you know, he and I are kind of similar in the, in the respect that we, uh, we're not trying to, uh, overdo it with screaming and yelling and crazy calls, but, you know, it's, it's more of a solid approach to things of, you know, executing the basics, but showing, uh, you know, showing excitement and things that, uh, that, you know, you're excited for. And, uh, there's just so many people that I, that name and, and, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, you, you hear something from somebody and you're like, man, I could probably use that, but, you know, I know there's no original thoughts in radio anymore, and everybody's kind of morphing off of each other. But I always tell these students that I brought that I teach with, the the number one goal 
is, you know, listen to somebody else, kind of hear how they do it, but adapt it to yourself because it's a hard enough situation to be the first you, let alone trying to be the second Marty Brenneman or, you know, the second Pat Hughes or, you know, the, the second Holly Rose, or you, you can't, you can't do that. You've got to adapt it to your own, your own way. Otherwise it's going to sound completely stolen and it's going to sound completely out of place. It's just, a, it's just one of those facts that, you know, you have to, you have to learn along the way. And I try to save these guys from, uh, from the hassle of having to learn that lesson. But, you know, I, I think I picked up some things from other, other broadcasts. You know, Pat Hughes is, is one of the guys that's great at poking fun at himself. Self-deprecation never hurts anybody. Every once in a while, uh, if it goes along with the you know the bits of the broadcast, you know sometimes you have a bad game. You got to make it a you got to make it a show rather than a, a baseball broadcast. So uh, a lot of those things I picked up. But uh, you know, again, I think it's just uh, for enjoyment purposes. You know, those are probably the guys I would listen to. All right. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? I am all over social media. Uh, you can always, you know, the, the, the thing I check the most, believe it or not, is Twitter. So, you know, direct message me at Twitter. Uh, it's, uh, Andy underscore Mazur and it's M-A-S-U-R and the number one. Uh, cause believe it or not, my name, for some reason, it's not my own, it's, it's not an original name apparently, <laughs> but it is my name. And I was, I'd have, I'd have a hard enough time remembering my own name, let alone someone else's at that time. But I had to get, I had to get creative with the, with the Twitter handle. I couldn't just go straight Andy Mazur. Somebody, somebody had it already. Um, but yeah, I'm on there. I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I have a broadcasting page on Facebook and, uh, I've been doing a little writing, a little freelance writing too, as well for, uh, for a sports uh, radio website. Uh, you know, kind of not, not so much an advice column, so, but I, I like to try to, uh, throw out some, some life lessons for those that are coming up through the ranks. Some things that I noticed when I listened to some tapes and, and things of that nature and, it's been a lot of fun. That, that, that part of it's been a lot of fun. And, of course, uh, you can hear me during White Sox games on WGN Radio. Have you ever contacted the person with the actual Andy underscore Mazer to find out what they do? Well, you know, you'd be, you'd be, it's funny because there's two guys. One, I think, lives in Minnesota, and one lives in Wisconsin. The guy in Wisconsin used to get emails that were, were supposed to be for me to him because people would assume my email address was my first name, then my last name and then whatever, you know, company I was with. When in fact he had that already. So I had to go the other route. I had to go last name first. So he got a ton of emails from me, from me and he reached out to me. And I think he's a graphic designer in, uh, in Wisconsin. And then there's a guy in Minnesota that gets a bunch of them from me too. I believe he might be uh, an instructor somewhere, and it's pretty funny. I mean, it's pretty funny how someone will come up to me and say, yeah, man, I sent you an email the other day. Did you get it? I'm like, no. And then like a day later, I get a forwarded one from an email address, Andy Mazur at something, and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I guess you sent it to the wrong Andy Mazur. But uh, graciously, and if these two guys are listening up there uh, to your podcast, I appreciate you forwarding my emails, and I, I've certainly been trying to, to stop them from, from getting to you in the first place. <laughs> Once again, we are visiting with Andy Mazur. He is the pre- and post-game host for the Chicago White Sox, also does innings of play-by-play uh, for the White Sox. And, Andy, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on the show. 
Absolutely, Logan. No problem. Uh, Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, radio underscore Logan on Twitter, Say the Damn Score on Instagram, or go to facebook.com slash saythedamnscore to follow the Facebook page. Finally, please reach out to the guests that come on this show so they know how much you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.